Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Michael, how have you been? I've been very well, Gary. Thank you very much. How have you been? I have been quite good. I wanted to open the uh, show by thanking those of you who came to our free speech event uh, last week. And also a thank you to those who watched it online. The event was uh, sold out. We sold over 800 tickets. I think we ended with... 150, 160 people on the waiting list. And I'm told by people who know these sorts of things that we had over 10,000 people watch it online. So a, uh, a fantastic turnout and worth the thousands upon thousands of euro it took to rent out the RDS. I was talking to some friends of mine who attended the event, Gary, only, the, only yesterday, and they were saying to me, what a wonderful day it was, and they had really enjoyed it, that the quality of the speakers was tremendous, but most of all, they had really enjoyed the fellowship of meeting so many like-minded people, people concerned about the nature of freedom and democracy and free speech, and they had an absolutely jolly time. They really enjoyed it and said, they should, we, should do, we should do them regularly, and lots, and I said, well, maybe, maybe not. It was, it was very, very expensive, let me assure you. Uh, and I don't think we made our money back on it. We priced it on basically the, the understanding we likely wouldn't, but that it was a worthwhile event to do anyway. Uh, so thank you again for people who came. I unfortunately was not able to attend myself as I was unwell, which was great fun. I got to spend weeks of work on it and then watch it at a distance voyeuristically. Yeah, but it was it was so much fun for other people who had to sit there behind the things getting peremptory and rather snippy texts telling you talk to this person tell this person to don't let this person particularly don't let this person mess around with the seating chart and uh, other people had to go off and try and shamefacedly engage this and it, and fail miserably and then get it from both ends i won't talk i want the, the listener can imagine who who was the poor sap that was on the end of this series this volley of peremptory snippy texts from Pierce other people in sick beds. I leave that to their imaginations. Well, I, Michael, I obviously won't comment on that in any sort of personal fashion. No. But I will say that a man who can't uphold the sanctity <laughs> of a seat of church is no man at all. It is the very test of manhood, is it not? You know, they just trampled over his seating chart. What kind of man would allow that to happen? <laughs> It's very easy to keep it as it should be. If someone sits on in the wrong seat, you just stand, you walk over to them, you put your hand on their shoulder, and you tell them they must move. For the strong do what they will, and the weak suffer what they must. <laughs> you love that, don't you? That is what you is that is your is that your absolute favourite quote? No, but it's up there. It's a good summary of realist uh, international relations and now also apparently uh, seating arrangements. Okay. Anyway, it was a tremendous event, even even if the seating arrangements were not properly adhered to. I ended up beside some very nice people. I didn't care. So there, there's actual important stories to talk about this week, Michael. But I wanted to open by talking about a story I think highlights a, a very important thing, but is not in itself an important story, at least not for most people. And that is in relation to, I, I assume you've seen the video, Michael. If not, I'll, I'll uh, well... I mean, if you have, if the listener hasn't, I'll put a link to it in the um, in the description of this podcast episode. It's of a, a gymnastics competition, and it's a line of young girls being given a medal, presumably because they did well, and it's not some sort of participation medal. 
And the official, uh, there's one black girl in the lineup and the official skips the black girl. Now on the video, it looks like she gets distracted when she's giving out medals and moves on to the next one. And this has led Michael to an outpouring of international condemnation on the basis that this shows that racism is alive and well in Ireland and deeply ingrained into Irish cultures. The problem, of course, being there that according to the Gymnastics Association, the official, when informed of the, this, uh, said it was a mistake and that she had gone back and given the girl a medal and was terribly embarrassed about it and wanted to apologise to the family for you know, any embarrassment the girl might have suffered. Well, she would say that, wouldn't she? You have an immense amount of people saying that this is racist. I mean, the Irish Independent, uh, in an article by uh, Mike, uh, by Mark Tighe, uh, said that the official had shunned the girl. Shunned? It does not seem fair. The woman said it was a mistake. And to my mind, Michael, a mistake would probably be the most reasonable thing to assume this is. Unless we think that someone in Ireland, where everyone knows each other, is going to, in a crowded stadium deliberately exclude someone on the basis of race for some reason as opposed to make a simple mistake now i believe gymnastics ireland are saying that the person is uh is not going to be involved in the organization anymore that they haven't renewed their membership so i think what we have here michael is a fairly young woman because it seems to be a fairly young woman who got condemned internationally as a racist many people in ireland have backed that up people seem to have not considered that the most reasonable explanation here is a simple mistake. What you you said, what is the, the the easiest or the most efficient explanation? What is the most obvious answer? I, I we were saying before off air. Uh, there, there's a piece that Bill Burr does, and he's talking about the way that racists behave in Hollywood movies, and it's usually some kind of dumb redneck who will come into the the auditorium or the swimming pool or the bar and make sort of loud, crass, racist comments. You people aren't wanted here. You get the hell out of this urban, you know? And Bert Bill said, you know, this is, nobody speaks like that. This is not how racists talk. If, they, if racists are going to say something, they look left, they look right, they look left again. They drop their heads, they drop their voices, and they say, well, you know me, I'm not racist. The idea that this woman, in an act of, I mean, what? what a kind of a public statement of racial purity i'm not going to give this little girl her medal because of my beliefs about race or something and does this in a crowded stadium it seems to me to be grossly unlikely now if they're going to be doing some kind of ibram x kendi-esque deep psychologizing about this and that the racism wasn't in a sense a conscious public act but rather because of the fundamental deep ingrained systemic almost genetic racism of the irish that the woman literally did not see the girl now again i, th I think we're talking some fairly fancy psychobabble there but i can imagine that argument being made but the simplest argument the simplest explanation would seem to be in ireland in the year of our lord 2023 in a situation like this is that something happened that the woman got distracted, turned around, and to her great personal misfortune, the little girl that she got distracted from giving the medal to happened to be a little black girl. And now she has been pilloried across the press of the world. And 
if you're what you're saying is she's no longer going to be involved in gymnastics no longer going to be involved in something which presumably she had some kind of connection with otherwise she wouldn't be handing out medals but gary is i mean we are whatever about this individual i mean we are talking about an age increasing in a, and a country where the supply of hate of all kinds just does not meet the demand really doesn't make you know we've had some good stuff i don't i don't know why but this kind of reminds me do you remember the the, the less listeners they may have forgotten do you remember the incident of the statues outside the shelburne oh yes the nubian slaves the nubian slaves turned out not to be nubian slaves at all or like and they were going to get rid of the statues outside the shelburne and only it was only because it was slightly delayed and only because really it was the Shelburne and because people had a particular attachment to them that people went off and did a little bit more research and somebody in England pointed out, no, actually, that's not what you think it is and so on and so forth. They were But we had a proper little outrage about that. It's It's been picked up by media to a surprising extent. I mean, when I was checking the Irish Times website earlier today, it was one of the top stories, as in one of the the most heavily uh, highlighted stories right up there at the top of the page. The Indo is covering it. Everyone seems to have covered it. But again, it's the sort of situation where you would see, if you looked at it, the simplest explanation is it's just a mistake because it doesn't really make sense otherwise. You know, they gave Jesse, they actually gave Jesse Owens the medals in Berlin. <laughs> it's not, not quite the same level though, is it? No, but I'm saying like, it, it would be a, an incredibly weird thing to do, to do this, you know. I mean, it, it, would, it would display... I would be... Jesus, I, I, I certainly don't want anybody to encourage people to start digging into the woman's past or her history or anything, but I mean, if this is the act, a public act of hatred and hostility and racism, you'd imagine that there have to be history. I mean... It's hard, it's, it seems unlikely the woman had a kind of an aneurysm and suddenly became this kind of public racist overnight. So uh, if, if, there, if there is form, I imagine the media will find it. And if there is no form, then that I, would I take as a confirmation that the media has got this thing rather horribly wrong. And the lady just made a mistake. Where I think there is actually a serious uh, part of the story is this. This is the same sort of thing we've seen in America, where... Anything that happens that involves particular races or particular ethnicities is immediately, to a certain amount of population, seen as racially motivated. And it has been incredibly corrosive to, I think, American social fabric. Yeah. And it's not something we should have here. I mean, there are always going to be a certain amount of people who assume anything that happens happened for particular reasons. I think, Michael, do you remember the Black Current incident? in which a very highly regarded black academic was served blackcurrant instead of wine. Oh, and yes. declared this to be a, a racial incident. Yes, I do. I do. I do. Yes, I remember now. Yes. Mm, highly regarded. Yes. We are at least sections of the society and sections of the people to whom the taxpayer pay their tax people are adopting pretty well undigested chunks of critical race theory from the United States. And you know, Gary, you could argue about the truth or the falsity of uh, critical race theory or the effect, but what, I, I don't know if there are many people outside of the people who are doing rather well in it as a business would say that critical race theory has made the United States a happier, more contented 
place for anybody. I mean, I'm not saying that that for the the former the former white majority or anything, but for any because you say when things happen to people to people of certain the problem, of course, is that when you start to look at the world through the optic of, say, critical race theory, everything is seen through the optic of race. Therefore, everybody has a race. In fact, one of the things you have to decide is what race you are. So you get this bizarre self-reflecting, navel-gazing about what what am I? Bizarrely, we're seeing this now with, with, with gender as well, with the proliferation of genders and people feeling that it's desperately important to identify as something across a whole range of things. It has not made this, the, uh, I, but also, Gary, do you not, is there not something just deeply weird about the idea that you could import something into Ireland, undigested like this, without noticing and thinking first? Well, actually, Ireland has a fairly different history, racially, socially, economically, demographically, etc., etc., to this. And yet, lo and behold, it's not that long that we started to be given lectures about our white privilege. And in fact, that language has been, been slipped into school curriculum to reflect on uh, our privilege, our white privilege, our white Irish privilege. And I know the reaction, rightly or wrongly, of many Irish people was to look uh, slightly or blankly and say, our privilege, really? I mean, yes, uh, we have done rather well in the last 30 years, but before that, not so good, not so much privilege. At least that was their sense, um, sort of post-family kind of sense and post-penal laws and that kind of stuff. Not a lot of privilege going around the gaff, but now we are supposed to be... Pri- but it's, Gary, it's good business. It's good business for somebody. And on the matter of good business, actually, Michael, interesting figures from revenue there. Oh, yeah. Revenue have uh, changed how they calculate the amount of people who are paying the higher rate of income tax. Yes. And it's substantially higher than it uh, it was. Revenue have now come out and said that over one million Irish workers, uh, about a third of all taxpayers, and I believe over 50% of those working full-time, are actually paying the higher rate of tax. Is actually pretty interesting. We already have pushes, particularly from Fine Gael, uh, for uh, tax cuts. And yeah. Finnefall have been largely standing against those. Um, and part of the reason why was that they were saying it wouldn't actually impact on all that many people. Although even using the old calculations, you were still looking at substantial numbers of people. So I think this is going to be used by Fine Gael to perhaps publicly take the bat to Finnefall for refusing to allow these tax cuts. Or at least that's the narrative they'll use. Yes. No, I was just passing, and I don't, as you know, Gary, I never make political comment. I just make observation and report the news. Anybody out there who listens to the Finnegan's promises that they're going to lower taxes for five five years running, year after year, tax cuts, tax cuts, tax cuts, and believes them, and in five years' time is disappointed and hurts that Finnegan didn't deliver on those tax cuts, well, yeah, um, I have some very fine beachfront property in uh, Florida that I'd like to sell you. Please get in contact. All those people who believe in Fine Gael's tax promises. But anyway, that's the, leave that little moment of bitterness aside, Gary, continue. This is a, an interesting example of how changing how you actually measure something, Michael, can actually change that. Hmm. It just reminds me of um, how we measure uh, 
uh, carbon emissions and things of that nature. And the fact that we measure them by country in which they are produced rather than the country in which they are consumed artificially makes certain countries look better and certain countries look worse. Like countries that are focused around export look worse than they actually are. Because, of course, Michael, if no one was consuming those goods, then they wouldn't be produced in the host country at all. Mm-hmm. Effectively means that the more you import, the better you look. But in a real sense, you're actually, you're, you're, you're causing more pollution. You just, it's not produced in your country. Well, I suppose what you could say that if you, if you change the way it was, what it would do was at least it would clarify the costs and then people would have to make their own minds up whether or not they wanted to accept the carbon costs of buying cheap goods manufactured in China. Or if they'd have to, if they're if they're going to change their consuming habits or their production habits, it, it, it would, it would it would clarify the costs and clarify the pricing structure. Right, but right now it certainly makes China look very much the villain. It makes us look the villain when it comes to agriculture. I mean, a lot of a lot of um, yeah, particularly agriculture, a lot of that is is export driven, and then Michael. It becomes a case of, well, you could look quite bad under the current regime, but if we were to look at countries where they consume it, we could actually look exceptionally good or perhaps better than those countries if they produce their own food, given that we are a very efficient, uh, we have a very efficient agriculture sector. But we don't seem to do that. So you, you get all these weird things like, well, we produce too many emissions. So what we're actually going to do is we're going to cut down on what we're doing and we'll import beef and then our emissions will go down. And you sort of go, yes, but global emissions may rise. Yeah. So, And in, in preparation for this, the Brazilians are going to double their size of their herd. and which we, So it'll all work out at the end. It'll all be great. We won't have any cows and we will produce less milk. In other places where they produce milk, not off grass, but off uh, fodder internally, and they use high, large amounts of fertilizer and more fodder, and they produce more greenhouse gases because in the, in the global sense, because they don't produce off grass and, and beef the same. Uh, it, it all makes perfect sense, except it doesn't make, course, make any sense at all. I think we, I don't know the number now, but I know that it was, it was around 90% of our agricultural production was exported. So that is very, very unbalancing when it comes to the carbon footprint. Amusingly enough, it might be a case where a lot of the international agreements and, and EU requirements regarding uh, emissions are actually going to make matters worse by offshoring those emissions to countries which are less effective, uh, which would be very amusing. Okay. Unless, of course, you care about this issue. Unless you care, yeah. yeah. Unless you care. Yeah, if you care, then less less amusing. I'm kind of surprised that the Greens accept this way of doing things. Like, I can see Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil because it's just the way they're inclined. But you'd think the Greens, because they actually care in this as an issue, would actually take that broader perspective on it and see that perhaps the current way of measuring things is... A problem, and you make things important when you say that you're going to measure them, regardless of if they are actually the most important thing. I suppose with the Greens, it's a question of well, what do they care about? Do they really care? And what what are the what, what works in their hierarchy of values? So, 
you know, is it that first and foremost they care about punishing the West for its historical sins, like the Industrial Revolution? Because if it hadn't been for the West and the Brits and the Belgians having an Industrial Revolution in the first place, then, you know, none of this nasty stuff would have happened. So we have to punish them. And they feel just very uncomfortable talking to people in China and India and other places like that, where people are not Europeans on the face of it, and telling them that they need to do, do things. They just feel very, very problematized by the idea that European people should be telling formal colonial sufferers uh, that they should be doing things. So therefore, it's up to us to do it. And also, on the other hand, they kind of like the idea that we should be the moral leaders in this crusade. And <laughs> sorry, I, I genuinely amuse myself there. The idea that which we are regularly told by, are we not, Gary, that we have to do this. Okay, it won't make any difference really to global climate, what Ireland does. And yes, it will cost us a lot of money and make us poorer and put people out of work and stuff. But we will be an example. We will be a, a moral example. And the Chinese will look at it and say, oh, look at the Irish. Look what they're doing. We should, we should copy them. They've been such a good example to us that we should change our economic policies, inspired as we are by the moral rectitude of the Irish eco parties. <laughs> you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the Chinese are studying us deeply as an ethical, an ethical system. I don't know. I'm skeptical. Yes, yes. It's, just, it's us and Car the work of Carl Schmidt. <laughs> yeah. I, look, if you want to have a crusade, that's fine. Have your crusade, even if it is a bit of a children's crusade scenario. But, you know, you want to make sure you're measuring the right thing or you're going to get off the, uh, you know, get off the boat and realize this isn't Jerusalem, it's Newark. <laughs> On a, a slightly different matter, Michael, belong yeah. to our friends... Yes. The LGBT charity. LGBTQIA. 2S LGBTQIA plus. Indeed. Well done. Charity. Uh, a glorious movement on the campaign to claim all of the alphabet. <laughs> and not just the alphabet now, let's face it. I'm expecting Actually, yeah, some... 2S, they've got they've got the numbers in. Yeah. They've gone Arabic. I think they're going to have some diacritical marks in there and maybe some punctuation. It'll end up being a sort of the artist formerly known as Prince scenario and it'll just be a symbol. Uh, belong to... We had a story there during the week. It was reported by my colleague Fatima Gunning about a, a piece of material that belonged to, who are funded by the Irish state, have been giving to teachers and youth workers. We found it, by the way, because if you log on to the Belong To site, they offer online training for teachers and there's no controls in place to actually verify that if you claim to be a teacher, you are in fact a teacher. So I simply signed up for it as a teacher and went through their training module. I haven't completed it yet, Michael, so I haven't been able to claim my certificate, but I'm hoping to get that done over the week. Well, you know, Gary, I think in a very deep and meaningful sense, you are a teacher, you know, and I think it's important you should own that. And in fact, you should celebrate it. Sure. Yeah, that's yeah. Those are words. <laughs> they are. They're words. Go on. So certificateless you may be, but you have done some of this uh, training. Yes. So we found a book, a booklet that they have, a handbook 
uh, for teachers and youth workers. Now, they don't say what age uh, that this is referred to. One of the examples in the handbook refers to 11-year-olds. I belong to, I think, generally focuses on 14 and up, but we don't know. So this handbook has a couple of things in it, but there's a section in it about what to do uh, if a child comes to you and says that they are gay or they're transgender or anything of that nature. And it tells people a couple of things. Now, one of them is it says, don't tell their parents. Now, that's, I may not agree with that, but I can understand that. It's parents do not, or teachers do not want to be in a situation where they have to go to parents about these things and they can argue that as long as it's not harmful, then there's no need to actively involve the parents if a child tells you something in confidence. That I think a lot of people would accept. Um, But then it goes on and says, if a parent directly asks you, tell them you don't know. Which is to say, it instructs teachers to lie to parents about their children. Now that might seem like a small step forward, but I think that's actually a very different story not actively getting involved and lying to a parent are not the same thing. Yeah. And so this handbook has been given out since 2019. So for four years, a state-funded NGO has been instructing teachers and youth workers to lie to parents. You know, there's a, a lady... Norma Foley, who is the Minister for Education, a lot of people out there won't know about her because she flees from the media, Gary, much like uh, the Lord Dracula flees the sunlight. I think she she fears if she appears in front of a microphone in an unmoderated context that she may actually turn to dust. I would really... I would really love, I mean, not just her, no, because, because it, let's, by the way, again, not to be tar- horribly picky, yes, yes state funded, but yeah, taxpayer funded. I would like her to be asked, or the Minister for Finance, or the Taoiseach, what was, what did the government think of this policy? I, I, I'd be cute, honest to God, curious to know what their position may be, because I can imagine in my I can imagine the defences that you might make about this, but I would be very curious when we're facing into election where many people who vote will in fact be parents of children, what their official line will be on if a parent asks a teacher a direct question that the teacher should lie. Is that government policy? So there's, there's a couple of interesting things there. One is that the, the document lists its funders on it. Now, it's difficult to tell if they funded this thing exactly because there are certain funding agreements you can have with groups which then require you to use that group's logo on a lot of your material. But it lists a government department. But the interesting thing is it doesn't list the Department of Education, Michael. It lists the Department of Children. Children, yeah. Rod, that's Roddy. So 2000, it's Roddy now, but 2019, it would have come in at the end of the uh, Zappone era. Yeah. Oh, well, yes. Super. But yeah, I, I take your point. But let's face it, when you're talking funding like this, I mean, fund, whatever about the official line on a particular piece of work, this kind of funding from government in an organization is incredibly fungible. And if you're taking water from one bucket, that means you have water in another bucket. At the end of the day, you're all talking, it's still all water. I I have a certain amount of people 
have been quite angry with us for publishing this story. Some have taken the strong point that it is not a teacher's job to out a child who may be gay or transsexual, and there might be concerns with the safety of that child. I don't think... I think you can make that argument in relation to not proactively telling parents. But at the point, again, where a state-funded NGO is telling teachers to lie to parents, I think you have crossed the line of what it is acceptable to do. I'm willing to concede, definitely willing to concede, that you could make an argument over this, but I would like them to make the argument. I would enjoy that. And then to to see to engage in the debate and discourse that would follow between parents and schools and the and the uh, and the state on regarding what is the best praxis here my suspicion is by the way that teachers would be very very loath to get involved in this kind of discourse or this kind of controversy and of course there're going to be safety issues potentially but is this is this to be taken as a as a general blanket blanket uh, position, or is it is it a more nuanced position? Is it a, is it a position where if the teacher has reason to believe that the child's safety or well being would be at risk? No, this is just presented as a blanket. If you are asked, lie. Just uh, Gary, if nothing else, that has to be incredibly corrosive about any kind of notion that there of a relationship of trust between teachers and parents in, in, in the system. Well, that's the, the, the second ground on which people have complained about this story. They've argued that it's going to spark some sort of backlash against teachers and that parents will be furious and that it will damage the trust between parents and schools. But why would backlash against teachers? It would be backlash against belong to, I could see, for giving out shit uh, advice in people's opinions. Potentially. Well, I think the the thinking there is that if teachers have been trained to do these things, well, then parents can't trust these teachers in the same way they could before. And accepting that principle, my point would be this. If the mere fact of a story being reported causes that sort of damage to a profession, if anything, it just proves that one, the story should have been published, and two, whatever that thing was probably shouldn't have been done. It is incredibly, an incredibly bad idea to train teachers or to tell teachers that they should lie to parents and then leave it in a document that can be found. Because what that means is eventually the document will come out and then people will assume that parents or the teachers may be willing to lie to them. And that's damaging to all involved. You do not do that. That is clearly a terrible idea. I mean, it's a terrible idea for parents, to, for teachers to lie to parents to begin with, but you definitely don't start training them and telling them that they should do so. And again, leave it in a written document. Yeah, no, I, I, the fact that it's left in the written document, which is there and accessible to all and any, it's also indicative to me that psychologically, and this has been true around a lot of this discourse, I don't think that anybody involved on, on one side of this debate expected the the people in the cheap seats to find out they just didn't think that they were going to get and now the people in the cheap seats have become aware of the issue that the cat is in some sense in partly out of the bag and 
these stories are starting to, to run and to proliferate and it's all kind of embarrassing. I'd be curious to know, and the numbers may be large, I suspect not, the numbers of teachers who have, first of all, the numbers of teachers who have actually taken this training. Secondly, knowing a lot of teachers, I mean, Jesus, maybe not, I'm wrong. I suspect there may be plenty of teachers who would take this training and would simply ignore that. I think a, a teacher just with a basic common sense, but also an understanding of what their function in the school and the relationship with the, with the child and the parents and the nature of the family would be, would, would say, no, well, I'm not. that Just because it's belong to tell me to do that doesn't necessarily mean that I, am as a teacher, am going to do that. Based on my interactions with teachers and, and various people in both primary and secondary schools, I'd say you're probably right on that. My general sense from talking to teachers is that they just don't want to get involved in this sort of thing. But what I think is happening, and the reason why this, certain schools are going in certain directions, is a lot of this is left to the individual teachers. A lot of schools don't seem to have clear-cut policies on what is acceptable and what isn't. So you end up with some teachers who are willing to go very, very far on this. Now, sometimes when the schools have official policies, those policies are also a bit of an issue. So, for instance, uh, belong to is referenced in the uh, gender and sexual health policy uh, paper of the Edmund Rice School Trust. And uh, readers of that policy are told that there are online resources available at the website of belong to, which is where this handbook is available. Now, I would question why a Catholic school group would be recommending Belong To to begin with, because I think what Belong To, Belong To's position is probably, should we say, Michael, not in uh, adherence with uh, catechism? I wouldn't say it's part of that wider Catholic tradition, no. <laughs> probably not. But Gary, to be, I would say, listen, to be fair, this is... is for schools and for teachers, an awful lot of this is just brand new stuff. I think the vast majority of teachers feel deeply uncomfortable and deeply unqualified to talk about it or to deal with it. They don't want to. The schools are in the same position and they're actively saying, will somebody tell us what to do? And right now, I think one of the problems is, and this is a problem for the, for the government rather than from the schools, is because they're funding these people, is that this is... This is the training that's available. You, know, you you take what you can get. If there isn't anything else you can get, well, then you... And also, remember, the fact that they're taxpayer-funded, whatever you, you like it or not, is an imprimatur. It is a declaration of competence and reliability and safety. Like, it's a safety mark on the back of your toaster. Because if, this, if these people weren't competent, reasonable, safe people to be training your teachers and to be working with your children, why would the government be funding them with, with taxpayer money? They must be. I, I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing for people to assume. If the government is funding something, well, then it must it must have passed the basic safety tests and smell tests that you'd apply to this kind of thing. And secondly, as I say, where if you want training because you you feel deeply incompetent incompetent in this area you're very uncomfortable it's very new so you go and get yourself training and if this is the only training there is available what else are you going to do it somewhat astounds me that belong to would 
would take this path. I've seen material before that just says parents or teachers should not get involved in this. Don't actively disclose. But again, I think amongst the general public, that is sort of acceptable, or at least acceptable on a case-by-case basis, depending on exactly what's happening. This is the only time I've ever seen an organization write down explicitly to go further and say, no, actively lie to parents. And while I don't have children, Michael, if I did have children and I found out that an, a group which was involved in a school I was sending my children to had been instructing teachers to lie to me about my own children, I think I would likely be fairly pissed off. I think I might actually be spectacularly pissed off. It's It also just rings maybe slightly distant alarm bells, but alarm bells all the same. That we that you're 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 building relationships of secrecy between parent between teachers and children and excluding parents. There's just something about that. Whatever the intentions, and the intentions may be good. And there, indeed, I can imagine there may be circumstances where you you might be able to say, well, actually, in the interests of this child. I don't feel that we should be doing this. But if that's going to be the case, well, Gary, I don't, I'm just talking off the top of my head. Surely, maybe we need to have other structures involved here. They're not going to tell, the teacher isn't going to tell the parents. But maybe if that's a decision, the teacher, that's not a decision maybe the teacher should make alone. Maybe the teacher should only do this in consultation with the principal or the head or, or the headmaster or headmistress of the, of the school or, there, or with uh, social services or a dedicated, you know, some dedicated service. The, I, I don't think this, I don't think a teacher will want to be left in the position where they're uniquely empowered to make that decision to ho- withhold that information. And I think that the teacher who wanted to be empowered to do that is a teacher that should be kept of, under control. If you want that, that's the kind of thing you shouldn't want. And they need to be kept, have some kind of check. But just the, the constitution here, I mean, we're, we're talking about a lot. I mean, it makes very, very clear who are, who are the, 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 the moral guardians and educators of children. And it's, it's the parents of the children. We sub, we, we sub out our children's education to the state or to private schools, but we but the parent, but parents retain the, the basic rights. Also, I in the context, I, I wasn't aware of this story, but I was I, I, I kind of accidentally I came across some stuff on the new guidelines in, in England, where it kind of seems to be the opposite. There seems to be a movement away from, well, no, I don't know if away from this, but certainly towards greater degrees of transparency and in fact parent engagement across the board in schools on issue, this this kind of issue to be honest i mean schools generally don't like parental involvement outside of certain very clear avenues like getting involved on the school board or things like that parents not in all schools but in a certain amount of schools are seen as a negative something that must be endured because parents can be very difficult and they can be demanding and they can have questions and they can just be a massive pain in the ass. The problem, of course, as you pointed out, Michael, is that parents have a right to be a pain in the ass because it is very clear that they have the responsibility for their child's upbringing. Yes. 
I think when you say there about structures and things like that, I think it belonged to had made that argument. It would have certainly, if nothing else, looked a bit better because then there is an official policy. There is something in place as opposed to what is kind of has a look of, and this will just be our little secret. Yes, yes. I would posit is just not a look you ever want to have in a situation involving a child and an adult who spends large amounts of time potentially unsupervised with that child. That's just not, and I'm not suggesting anything, but that has a look to it. It's just, it and yeah, if not yet, not it's, what it's, you want. It's a bad look and it has bad resonances and rings bad bells in a country which has too rich a history of uh, teachers and uh, students very different times very different contexts very different teachers indeed but you know we we have too much history and too much resonance with this subject it's just it feels wrong even if there's absolutely nothing wrong going on but most of all just it shouldn't be in the hands and it shouldn't be the responsibility of an individual teacher to have to make that decision i don't think that's fair on a teacher I don't think they're qualified. I don't think they feel they're qualified. And I, 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 I say again, if you have a teacher who feels that they are qualified and they are the correct person to make the decision, then I would start to worry because, mm, are you really? You know, that kind of confidence in this kind of area would make me would make me concerned. But uh, it just goes to show that it, it, we have to, it had to, and again, to be fair, this stuff has happened so quickly and it, and so explosively there hasn't really been time for an a, a widespread understood approach to evolve organically within the system so you're going to get problems like this but the the, the answer isn't is not to try and shut down the discussion but to have a to it's a jesus it sounds like a really tedious politicians thing to say but to je- have a wide ranging engagement with parents and teachers and schools and patrons and all of the people involved in this and see what it is they want because ultimately and that is the point unless you have very sound reasons to consider the safety issue that the, the people who make the decision about this are going to be the children are the the parents of the children and they have a right to know what's going on in the type of school so for example they may have an idea of what will go on in a school which is part of their say the Edmund Ignatius Rice Trust because that those schools are on the face of Catholic schools and you therefore you would understand that they would have a Catholic catechesis or Catholic anthropology and if that's not the case well then the parents should know that that's not the case there should be transparency about these things on, on the point of transparency there does seem to be in certain schools an unwillingness to tell parents what is actually happening just in a broader sense and I would be very interested if eventually that's done to the wrong parent and they bring a court case, if that would stand up. I suspect if that actually got to a high level court, it would be found that schools must actually tell parents what their children are involved in, what they're doing, education plans, things of that nature. For the very simple reason that because parents have the right to oversee their child's education and have the right to pull their children from certain classes if they feel that those classes are not appropriate, they must have, therefore, I would argue, a right to see what their children are doing, because if they don't, then they cannot exercise those rights fully. So I wouldn't be surprised if this eventually ends up in a court case. 
it may ultimately require the threat of financial punishment to force people into clarity about this, which is unfortunate. You'd hope that this thing, these things could be done on the basis of good faith and, and willingness, but who knows? Anyway, we will cut it at that, Michael. Uh, we will be back next week. All the best. Bye-bye.